Hello and welcome to the Right for Your Life podcast. I'm Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And this is going to be a slight continuation of last week's episode, in a way. Mm-hmm. Because um, last week we started talking about the publishing process and quickly realised that, well, certainly I realised that my notes were way too long for how much time we had left. So hopefully we'll be able to get through most of, if not all, of my remaining notes on the publishing process. But the idea the idea was and is to provide some sort of some sort of um, uh, factual overview of what happens during the publishing process. So kind of how to get published or things that you should do at certain times, what an agent does, that kind of thing, how, how it works with the publisher, but also with a little anecdotal evidence thrown in too. So we'll be continuing to talk about that um, for the bulk of the podcast. We have a listener's question. Have you got your xylophone ready for later? Of course. That's going to come up later on. We have a question um, about, well, it's about a topic that I can't quite remember, but I've got it written down somewhere. So when I come to it, I'm sure I'll be able to, be able to dig that out. <laughs> and um, and uh, before all that, we've got some items of news. And before that even, how the hell are you? I'm great, thank you. I've got uh, work coming out of my ear holes at the moment. Um, so in that sense, I've been doing loads of writing, absolutely loads. Um Sitting at my desk at work um, and in the evenings as well at the moment. But um, but yeah, so it's just all work, work, work. Next week, I think it will be less work, work, work. So that'll be fantastic. And I'll be more of an interesting person. And for first time listeners or people who didn't listen last week, that's because you are um, you're, you're 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 working around the Eurovision Song Contest. In yes. One, yeah. In one way. You're not performing, are you? No. It's a shame. I, that's actually not been one of my dreams in life. You should I don't have, know why. You should have um, just extended the listeners' questions. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I am going along on Saturday. It's it's the 10th of May um, here in Copenhagen, just down the road from where I live. So I'm very excited to be going along. Um, I work for Visit Denmark, so we are, um, we are involved in it. We are partners kind of thing. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's kind of exciting. It's going to be mad once it's all finished because, I mean, the whole of Copenhagen this week has just been packed with people from all over the world that are here for Eurovision and it's, and it's all going to be packed up again and, and, and gone next week. So who goes to Eurovision? So surely there's only so many people that can get to the actual venue. So is it just, is it just kind of all the crews from the different countries, like all the, all the kind of entourages? Yeah, there's enormous entourages, all of the TV networks. And then on top of that, there are serious Eurovision fans where they say it's a way of life. It's not, it's not a hobby. It's a way of life. And they travel around, um, as well and they've got their own they've taken over one of the big clubs here in Copenhagen which is their fan base for the entire week um, and they're doing all sorts of parties and things like that um, so yeah and then we, we've been doing competitions for people to win tickets to come and, and so um, that's going to be lovely there are and, and um, yes we've, we're hosting parties around the world for it as well just heard very excitingly that uh, Miley Cyrus might be um, performing at one of our parties, just to drop that name in there. I mean, that is exciting, isn't it? 
It is. I mean, she probably won't. But um, but that would be very exciting. Bit of twerking. <laughs> did, did you say that with a Somerset accent? I did. I don't think that you can say it any other way than so, be taken seriously. Oh, no, not that you can take it seriously anyway. What, I'm not actually sure that I know what it is. I just know that it's bad. <laughs> twerking? Yeah. I don't know if this is the most appropriate place for me to explain. Well, Miley Cyrus does it, doesn't she? She's very good at it, I've heard. Oh, <laughs> well, I'll just do a little bit of um, of interweb searching afterwards and see what if I can, what I f- find if I search twerking. But anyway, that <laughs> in a very um, long winded way is, is is how I can update you on me. How are you, Ian? Yeah, I'm 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 very well, very well, thank you. Done um, a very small amount of writing this week on account of having the. Inter- entire weekend uh the entire weekend spent looking after two toddlers on my own but it was fine everything was okay and uh but i managed to do a bit of work on the novel yeah um, so you've actually done some writing then that's great a little bit of writing i wrote a paragraph that i was happy with which doesn't happen very often mm. quite quite i'm quite self-critical what was it about that that particular paragraph that uh excited you or, um i thought it was funny <laughs> but it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sort of slightly macabre. I just thought it was um, sort of it's kind of uh, quite dark humour, but I thought it was quite amusing. Ooh. So um, yeah, it doesn't take much, but it's quite good, isn't it? It's, it's just if we actually make this in some way useful for people listening, sometimes you can write for ages and it just doesn't happen, and you can get quite down, and it can be off-putting. But sometimes all it takes is one paragraph or even one sentence just to make you feel like um, uh, it's not all. Completely futile, and that um, that it's worth worth doing, and that's kind of what this paragraph is all about. But um, I, I think you've summed up writing totally there. Do you not think it's just like long stretches of oh, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, and then small pockets of hooray? Yeah, that's true. That pretty much is, isn't it? Oh, why do we bother? <laughs> oh, it's uh, like life uh, itself. That's what life itself is sometimes like. Eh? And why do we bother when the novel is dying? Oh yes, yes. So shall I just um, shall I just introduce the the little? I was going to say little, but it's not little. Um, the article that I um, I found interesting this week. Yes, it's been quite a popular article on the internet. There's been quite a lot of uh, kerfuffle about it, and people making jokes at the author's expense, and um, and just general interest in in the in the concept. But yeah, you tell us. Oh, I want to hear these jokes. I haven't heard those jokes. Well, they're not really jokes. It's more people kind of um, mocking the notion. They're not, the, the, the article is that the novel is dead. It's by Will Self. And um, it's a very long piece, which is why I've not quite read all of it yet. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, yeah, so people have just been kind of... Uh, it's the idea that the, the novel is dead. Is That's been said so many times by so many different yeah. people. And look, we still all have novels coming out, like a million novels come out a, a day or, or something ridiculous. Yeah. So it's... Um, so yeah, so it's, it's there are people not really specific jokes, but the general kind of um, kind of uh, a, a general kind of feeling of oh yeah that old kind of that old thing again. Yes, I mean, do you not think? I think Will Self is entirely aware that there are this has been a subject talked about many times over throughout history. Probably would like to be part of that. What do you call it, like that record? 
have his two pennies worth said. Uh, it's actually like a novel itself. The uh, the article, isn't it? <laughs> it's very it's very Will self. It's a very kind of uh, it's like a creative writing piece. It's a very flowery language, very kind of eloquent, um, very kind of yeah, sort of uh, lots of uh, you know interestingly interesting phrases and languages. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very Will self article. In the bit that you've read, how many words were there that you'd never seen before? <laughs> I don't know. I've got it. Let me see if I can find one. I've got it right. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed, I should say, to admit. Okay, yeah. There are a handful of words I've never, ever heard in my entire life in that article. And um, that's... that's. Um, I've, got, well, I've got two right here. It's, there is now an almost ceaseless murmuring about the future of narrative prose. Most of it is at once Panglossian and Melioristic. Now, Panglossian is capitalised, so I presume that's some kind of um, um, a person or an era. I don't know. Melioristic. I don't know what that I, means. Do you know? Do you know what it's like when I read stuff by Will Self? I think, oh, now I've heard that word before. I don't know what it means. Yeah. And sometimes it's like I've never heard that word before. But with the melioric, what was it? I can't even say it now. It's, uh, it's melioristic, which is a derivative of meliorism. It's an idea in metaphysical thinking, holding that progress is a real concept leading to an improvement of the world. It holds that humans can, through their interference with processes that would otherwise be natural, produce an outcome which is an improvement over the aforementioned natural one. So what's the sentence again? Oh, it's almost... like ameliorate. That means to improve, doesn't it? Okay. The French and everything. They all. Oh, I see. All these words are linked. Words are great. Carry on. Panglossian. Should we find out what that means? No. Too late. Panglossian is is uh, marked by the view that all is for the best in this best of possible world. Worlds. Excessively optimist. Excessively optimistic. Oh, Pangloss was an optimistic tutor in Voltaire's Candide. I didn't know that. I've not read it. So it was a person. There you go. That's great. Um, yes. So, anyway, um, I'm sure that it's been said a million times over. Apparently there's even, like, a Wikipedia page about the novel being dead um, and all the people that have contributed to that. Um but the, the the part of it that interested me, I mean, he was talking specifically about literary novels, wasn't he, rather than the novel. And the fact that there are more novels being produced now than ever before was actually part of the problem because it's the type of novels that are being produced. He was complaining about. Um, but the part that interested me, sorry, that I wanted to say was uh, his <laughs> the way that he summed up creative writing courses. Did you read that bit? Did you get down to that bit? I didn't get down to that bit, but there's been a lot of kerfuffle again over uh, creative writing courses recently we mentioned it didn't we before uh, before christmas did we i think we covered this before christmas a little bit the idea that uh, whether creative writing courses are um um not detrimental but whether they're whether they're kind of worth it or any good enough who was it there was it was another author was it hanif Qureshi? oh did yes yeah and this will self's got a slightly different take on it though which was quite interesting um about the fact that they they are like creating this kind of um, not microclimate, but they create they're self perpetuating. This is what he said. Okay, self perpetuating and self financing literary set aside scheme, purpose built to accommodate writers who can no longer make a living from their work. 
In these care homes, erstwhile novelists induct still more and younger writers into their own reflexive career paths so that in time they too can become novelists who cannot make a living from their work and so become teachers of creative writing. Discuss. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, there's there's a lot of truth in that. Um, uh, we've, again, it's, it's very well documented that writers, the vast majority of writers, and this is published authors, myself included, yourself included, do not make money from their fiction it's true <laughs> it's true i mean uh, a lot of authors you know plenty uh, authors do it's not like it's no one making any money from it but there is a huge huge number of authors and like i say published authors this is not just unpublished authors or people kind of scrabbling around or even people who've written rubbish books generally there is very little money for the majority of writers writing fiction is just it's just kind of true yeah and i was kind of thinking about how like in the world the the whole way that the world functions and works there are there's certain organizations and systems that hold it all together artificially so that you know even though countries don't have any money and people don't have any money everything can carry on you know think about ngos um you know world bank UN, things like that, that are just kind of plugging in the holes for people. And I was thinking, is it the situation now where the only way that we have a publishing industry and that we have novels produced at all is because there is a creative writing sector, creative writing courses, which are actually providing the the financial stability for it all? Well, but financial stability—it's an interesting point. But who are they? Explain further. What? Who are they? Who are the creative writing courses providing financial stability for? For the people that are writing novels. But how or are they? People that are writing. How are they? Oh, by by paying them to by be giving them writers. work, yeah, and also by creating more people that want to. Well, I mean. Obviously, there are people that are interested in trying to write, so that's that's always going to be there. But this idea that you know you're not going to be able to to write and make money from it without doing something on the side. You actually have to have all of these creative writing courses now. If they if they weren't there, the whole system would crumble, and people just wouldn't be able to write novels. Well, there's a lot going on here, but I do think that there is the the idea of it being a self perpetuating kind of um process is is probably accurate in terms of creative writing courses um but the reality is there are thousands of authors and there aren't that many creative writing jobs going that pay anything you know pay a full-time or even um a part-time wage i don't think i mean there just there isn't there isn't the numbers for it to be a completely a complete circle of self-perpetuation i suppose so i don't think necessarily that that's the case but you do have to wonder why creative writing courses are so popular when it's it's so it, it's such a kind of it's such a public concept now that there isn't any uh, there isn't it's that it's very difficult to make money from writing fiction mm. um so why do people still do it why are they paying i mean if i if I totter, I mean, I don't really want to do this because it would be very upsetting. But if I think about how much I paid for my master's 10 years ago, um, which was um, a creative writing course here in Sheffield, um, 
on and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to forget all the hours that I did spend writing the novel. That's just kind of I'm going to I'm going to take that as as um, as not included. If I just take that, um, I am I I know that I, I'm I'm still in the I'm still in the red. I've not made any money <laughs> at all from from yeah. my novel. If that's the case, and so people are spending thousands of pounds on courses, which are much more expensive now. I imagine. Um, and they will never see the return from those. I mean, most people who do creative writing courses don't actually go on to be published anyway. I think mm-hmm. it's some kind of myth that people, that it's a fast-track to publication. I just, it's just not the case. I mean, I know loads of people who went on those courses, uh, were on my course and go on those courses who just, they either weren't quite good enough or they weren't lucky enough to go on and and um, and get their work published. Um so why do people do it? And I, I think there can only be two things. It's that, first of all, that people still want to be part of something that is bigger. They want to be part of a literary tradition. They want to be part of the literary canon. I mean, by far the thing that drove me to write my novel in those sort of dark times when I just never thought I was going to get finished and then never thought I was going to get published, the thing that kept me going and the thing I think that is going to end up forcing me to the finishing line with novel two and onwards is just this sort of desire to be part of a bigger literary canon. I mean, I can, I, I'm in a very privileged position now that I can, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's not like I think that people look at the greats and go on, there's Ian Broom as well. I know that that's not the case, but still I have a published novel that people can buy from a shop and it is now part of a much wider thing where if it was still a word document on my computer, it wouldn't be. So I think people still have that sort of sense of wanting to be a writer, to be an author, to have something published, to belong to something wider. The second thing people think is that it's about it's that money isn't as important as a lot of people would lead you to believe. And it's I've spoken about this so many times, but it's one of the most frustrating things I find with a lot of the rhetoric around the rise of self-publishing is how much focus there is on how much money is made. Now, that's not to say that I want to spend the rest of my creative years sat making no money and and just putting out books that people don't read. That's I'm, I'm, not what I want. I want to make money and I want people to read my books. But there is such a focus put on it um, that I find it quite frustrating because ultimately I, I believe that, you know, it's, you're making art and that it should be as good as a person should can possibly make it, and it should really mean something to someone, and ideally it will be important to other people and maybe even to wider society if you're lucky or particularly good. So you should aim for those things, and I still think that that is true. I think that people that shell out money to go on creative writing courses, people that don't shell out money but still spend years and years writing novels or writing any kind of fiction, poetry, whatever it might be, I think that they still do it because they believe in art and it's because they want to create art and they want to share their art and give themselves as best chance possible and arguably one way of doing that is to go on a creative writing course. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll uh, I'll just finish off this, this little discussion and this section on Will Self with... Um, just one last quote um, we don't need to discuss, but I thought this was also very interesting, um, that he remarked that the hallmark of our contemporary culture is an active resistance to difficulty in all its aesthetic manifestations, accompanied by a sense of grievance that conflates it with political elitism. 
I thought that was very interesting as well. And I feel like I can see that culturally around me often as well, that in general, people just want easy things and they don't want anything. Anything that's difficult to grasp or to understand is to them not very interesting. And this is in the in the general sense, I'd say, with people. Because like as you've just been talking about, there are many, many people that would like to contribute seriously to... Um, to the cultural canon but do you do you think that people in general are just completely switched off to difficult things these days i don't i, I mean think... I go on go on no i was going to say i mean obviously like we know that you have to give things in bite-sized form now online and and i think he's talking about in particular younger generations yes but i see it in myself as well and i have it's I find it difficult I'm constantly trying to assess myself and you might be able to sort of share what you think as well but um because you've been in a very similar situation at a very similar time but I've been trying to work out how much of the difficulty I find in sitting down and writing fiction how much that is tied with the fact that I am now a father to two very small children and um and at the moment also trying to set up my own business or setting up my own business doing it i have my own business how much of it is to do with that but also how much of it is to do with the fact that i am entirely ingrained in this kind of culture of checking um you know getting my news via feed readers and using twitter and and um less so facebook but still checking it and having having really really good engaging bite-sized games right there in my hand on my phone that i can just spend 10 minutes doing that if i want and so how much how much is is my resistance to difficulty if that was is that the phrase resistance to difficulty mm-hmm how much of that with with me, which I can feel sometimes, is to do with just because my life has changed and my circumstances have changed, and how much is the impact of modern life, for want of a better way of putting it? Oh yeah, I mean, I think here in this in this sense, I interpreted it more as he's talking about difficult subjects to understand or to grasp in terms of literary fiction. That he's talking about that, and that's another reason why this is, you know, a, a genre that's going to die out in, in his mind um yeah because it yeah it's a good article though isn't it it's worth absolutely worth reading it is absolutely yeah it's going to be in the show notes do you know where to find the show notes me myself yeah and i <laughs> i was asking for that wasn't i yeah yeah i know go then what's the url oh oh no but i don't know what episode it is i've forgotten 110 109. Yes. 110, I think. Oh. I, I'm literally testing you on air, which is unfair to say the least. It's by 5 by 5 slash WFYL slash 110. That's a blooming good try. <laughs> it really is. It's 5 by 5tv slash WFYL slash 110. That's what I said. I just said it really quickly and you didn't hear. A bit like Jeremy Clarkson, hey? <laughs> right, Carl, we've got to go on. We've got to push on to what you wanted to talk about. 
Very briefly, the, an article by Matt Gemmel, who is um, uh, he has been a developer for many years, um, and he at the start of this year, his blog is is really good, interesting. Followed it for a while, um, and he became he went full time writer um, early this year, February, something like that, and. Um, he just written a piece about working from home. Now I've not been doing an awful lot of working from home since I run my own business. So, so Matt has run his own business from home for years and years, uh, more than seven years. He says it right here at the start of the article. Um, and, um, it's, he talks, it's, it's just an article about the whole concept of, of working, I guess, in the place where you do lots of, you know, you live your life. Um, but it's not a, it's not the type of article where you it's kind of it doesn't it doesn't complain about it neither sort of wildly champion the concept of working from home it's sort of a very practical kind of this is what it's like and this is what you need to do to actually get things done which is very useful for me because i'm now in a position where i i I could say i haven't actually been doing much working from home i've got some office space and i'm also working in-house with a client for most of the week um in my um in, in my guise as a freelance copywriter um, the day job, as I like to call it. Um, so I haven't experienced much of this, but but of course I've spent years writing fiction from home, and a lot of what he says in this article really hit home with me in terms of writing fiction and um, just the importance, because you spend a lot of time on, uh, at your desk. So just things like having a decent chair and how it might be expensive, but it, it actually... You know, it's quite important because it will knack you back if you're not careful. The idea of having a schedule, even though you're at home. So say, right, I'm going to be at my desk at this time. I'm going to work until this time. I'm going to have my dinner at this time. Rather than just sort of getting up when you like and starting when you want, checking Facebook, Twitter, emails, and then starting. It's like saying, right, I'm going to start work at 9 o'clock every day, and that's when I'm going to do it. So it's the idea of creating routines and, and then trying to force yourself to stick to them, even though you're in your own house. The other one I quite liked was the idea of making sure that you're dressed properly for working. So even though you're in your own home, the idea that you should still get up and put uh, whatever clothes you would typically go to work in, perhaps not a shirt and tie, mm. but, you know, just even at the very least jeans and a T-shirt. And, yeah, you but know. you see, yeah, you see there, I'm, I, I was with him up until that point, but if you're going to be sitting at your desk in your home... Why not have a comfortable pair of jogging trousers on that you can, you know, I was going to say flop out over, but I mean, just like, you know, have your tummy. (laughs) (laughs) I can't pull that one back. No, that's still bad. You know what I mean? If you're sitting in in clothes that are uncomfortable, because you don't don't necessarily wear the most comfortable clothes to work. I think being at home is a perfect opportunity. And I am more creative when I'm actually in slacks as you call them. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right, and I suppose it is one of the perks that you can work in your pants. I'm trying to find <laughs> it here, but it's, um, in, in, of course, in, in England, pants means underpants, underwear. Um, it says here, your, your schedule will look different, but the, more, the, the important thing is to have one and stick to it. Letting, you, letting yourself sleep late is dangerous because it throws everything else off. Likewise, you need to be up and dressed. Don't go near the couch. Don't switch on the TV. Don't play video games. Yes, of course you can make exceptions, but generally that should be your plan. Lunch yeah. probably shouldn't be taking more than 30 to 60 minutes either. Yeah. Um, I think he used the word pride or 
shame or something like that. So if you do working in pajamas every day, after a while you'll start to kind of lose respect for yourself in some way. Oh yeah, I, <coughs> I can understand. So that was what that was saying. yeah, that was kind of the idea. Um, he recommends an app called Self Control, which is um, um, about um, blocking your your you know to Facebook and Twitter or wh- whatever it is that you need to block on the internet, so that you can just focus on whatever you're doing. I use something called Antisocial, which is more or less the same sort of thing. So that was a good tip, and um, it's 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 just a it's just I thought it's just a, a a good piece, and no matter what you write, whether you're a freelance writer working from home whether it's writing fiction it's the idea of being really disciplined and sticking to it and it's a very kind of it's a very kind of pragmatic way of looking at it so um it's that'll be in the show notes too that's good on the days when i've uh, worked at home and tried to be writing i allow myself to watch an episode of something on netflix while i eat my lunch yes that's a good way of doing it um i feel that's a good brain break to sharpen my saw absolutely good metaphor Yes, I th- uh, that was from, was it from the habit, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? I can't remember if it was that guy. Someone was talking about sharpening your saw that this, you know, you can't go at something with a blunt saw. You have to take breaks. Well, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Totally does. Are you going to lead us further into the process of getting published, Ian? I'm going to lead you a merry dance. <laughs> oh, that sounds really nice. It, it does says, it end in publication? Yes. Yes, it does. Brilliant. Um, and then making no money. <laughs> so, Becoming a creative writing tutor. Yes. Um, where did we get to? So, yeah, so we're talking about the publishing process. I realised, excuse me, I've got a bit of windy pops. I'm drinking beer whilst doing this, and it's a very bad idea. The listeners and I are sick and tired of your windy pops. I know Have you been to the doctor? No, it's some kind of personal affliction that I feel I need to keep to myself and battle with. You don't with. keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from sort of telling a couple of thousand people every yeah. week. Yeah. Um, um, where were we? So the publishing process. I realised um, before last week's show, I was planning what we were going to talk about and I thought, you know what, I don't think I've ever sat down and actually talked about what goes on when you're trying to get published at the various stages so that's what I started doing last week and I got as far as getting an agent so I got as far as explaining about this uh, how you would write a synopsis how you'd write a cover letter and how you would write an extract uh, or include an extract from your work and then you would send that to an agent if you were trying to get an agent to publish your fiction one thing I don't think I mentioned was non-fiction so of course some people may want to publish non-fiction and sometimes the process can be quite different so I think I said if it's a novel, for example, then you would typically be expected to have the entire thing finished when you start to submitting to an agent. So an agent will read an extract and then say, right, now let's see the whole thing just to see if we want to actually take this further. And if you, of course, if you don't have the whole thing, then it, it all falls apart. If you're a non-fiction author, I think that you can... There, there, there is, uh, you, you would probably need to have some of it written and you'll need to have a really good synopsis and a really good kind of explanation of what it is that you're trying to get across in your work or in your book. I guess why it's different, why it's a new piece of research or something like that. Um, and and you may have to pitch your work in some kind of way. So I think that might be different. Um, but I thought that I would talk now about what an agent does. So I've said that 
basically I'm saying that I think that if you want to publish fiction and you don't want to self-publish, then basically you should get an agent. That's what most people do. And there are good reasons for it. What are your thoughts on this? Because agents, I think, in all of the in all of this, um, the, as, as self-publishing has, has become more and more mainstream, one of the things that drove people to it was kind of an, an inevitable bad-mouthing of the traditional publishing process with a great deal of accuracy in many places. So, for example, people's, people who said, look, I just don't want to wait six months to try and find out whether, I, whether an agent even wants to look at my work, that is, to my mind, an extremely valid reason to self-publish. If you haven't got that in you to wait, then absolutely fair enough. That's a good reason. But there are lots of other things that people do which I think are just, it's just nonsense and it's just not been my experience. One of those things is is a lot of negative criticism of agents and what agents do. So what do you, what's your, because you haven't got an agent, we established that last week. No, but my mother does. She does. And um, and I can see how vital it is for her. I, It's one of those things that you'd love to be able to say, oh, I've, I've got an agent. I would love that. Oh, I do apologise. Sorry. That was my Teflon telephone ringing. I, um, I assumed that uh, Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer walked in. <laughs> um, where was I? My mum's agent. Yes. Um, yeah. Very, I mean, valu- you, very when, valuable. When you, very valuable. I mean, when you've got a lot of manuscripts, a lot of books and a lot of different publishers that you're working with, um, you know, you wouldn't spend any time writing if you're juggling all of that and and coordinating all that. And I don't think you can anyway, like you said last week, you know, you won't even get through the door without an agent knocking on it first for you. Um, So, yeah, I wish I had one. Do you? I do. Even not that you... I'd have them give them anything to do particularly. I mean, but you know, I mean, if you take my book for example, just you, you do kind of in the poetry world, it is just very much about about the writer and the publisher. There are no, there's. I don't think in general that there's a lot of agent activity. Um, well, one of the main things that they that they that they do actually is um, fight your corner. And I know that's probably yeah. not the most obvious thing to start with, but that's been the experience. I haven't had any any reason for um, any fighting going on with my publisher, who's, you know, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> Especially as uh, the folks at Legend listen to this, that was not aimed at you. But mm-hmm. people do have problems, and um, and and it is difficult to 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 kind of have that kind of. Uh, you can have any kind of conflict with the, between the author and the publisher. So having an agent to fight your corner for you is actually really important. Your agent should be your key advocate right from the very beginning of um, of, of the process, really. And it's 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 their job to sell your book. It's their job to get you the best contract, and they will absolutely be right behind you all the way. That's kind of their primary job, really, is to be your absolute key advocate. Um, so that's why when you try and find an agent, it's very important that you make sure that they are a good fit for you. I think, as you said, you said you you, you wanted to, you would ideally have an agent, um, but and I, and I think that's how most people feel, and it's quite tempting just to 
take anyone just go oh yeah i want to you know to, to want an agent so much that you just kind of accept anyone but actually you mm. really need to do your research in the first place and make sure that it's the right person for you and when you go and meet them for the first time if you ever get into that position remember that you are um uh you are working out whether they are a good fit for you as much as the other way around um, because you're going to be working really closely with them and you need to trust them, you need to get on with them as people and uh, and all of that kind of thing is, is really important. So um so yes, so you, you so where are we now? You've got so you've you've submitted to an agent and someone has uh got back to you and said, We'd like to see the rest. They've read the rest and they say, This is great, so let's meet up. So you'll go and meet them and hopefully they will offer you a contract. And uh, usually that contract with an agent um um, uh, amongst various other things, but the main thing is that that they would usually typically take about fifteen percent of whatever you uh, make, so your your advance and then any royalties that you make on that advance later on. Um, um, uh, once you've That's got book sales, fifteen percent. It puts a lot of people off. Um, and well, that's that's rubbish. Actually, it doesn't put a lot of people off, but it's one of the. It's, again, it's one of the things that people who have chosen to self-publish say is like they just want to keep all of the profits. And you know, that's fine if they can, if they feel if someone if you if you are thinking, well, that's just too much money. I'd rather try myself. I've, you know, I've got a platform. I've got the time to put to create my own business effectively. Then, then fine, go for it. Um, but. <laughs> If I refer you back to our conversation where I said very few writers make any money, then that also means that very few writers make any money for agents. So it's worth bearing that in mind when you when you kind of uh, question how much, um, how much how much you know that fifteen percent is. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, can I just jump in here and say something that I. I've often been asked, actually, when I used to um, write children's picture books and I would tell people about it, um, people often said to me, oh, do you find the um, the illustrator yourself for the picture book manuscripts? And so I just wanted to say, um, with regards to submitting picture book manuscripts to agents, um, that you don't. I mean, unless you are doing the illustrations yourself, obviously, then that's much later down the process that that you as the writer would be hooked up with a with an illustrator for the text. It's just a little aside there. Carry on, Ian. A fine aside. <laughs> um, so what will an agent do first? So you will kind of, you'll sign a contract, you'll agree sort of the terms, all that kind of thing. And then hopefully, if you have uh, uh, an agent who's willing to work with you, they will get your book into a position where... Um, it's at its finest they will help you get it ready to sell they will um if you're especially lucky they will even perhaps do a little editing work not all agents do that i was lucky that i did do some work with my agent and my book was an infinitely better book by the time um, we'd finished working on it together and started submitting it to publishers so some agents will actually work with you and you should ask them at the start you should say oh, are you willing to help me make this better because i think it could be obviously don't don't be too negative when you say that but you know you should be honest and and if and if and if and it might be the agent says that we want to work with you but we think that you could improve it in some ways that's what happened to me and i said do it help me make, oh. help, help me make it better I can totally understand that. And I was going to say to you, didn't you actually find it like a really um, exciting prospect of having, you know, having that kind of, a it, bit like somebody to spar with and to say, okay, look, 
I don't know. With me, it was my it was my publisher where that happened, and and I didn't think. I mean, how much editing can you squeeze out of my you know poems, which are quite small and, and all that? And it was brilliant, and I, I I really enjoyed that that whole part of it. Actually, having somebody else to work with to to really tighten up your text is fantastic. Yeah, it was amazing. It was a fan- fantastic experience, and I I loved I loved doing it as well. It was it was a real relief to me having spent so much time on my novel to then have someone who really knew what they were doing as well, yeah. who really who really knows what works, who has read goodness knows how many novels, published and unpublished, and really knows what they're talking about. Um, that was fantastic. But you're right; that would typically happen later on in the process with the publisher, and you mm. will and, and part of the agent's job is to find an appropriate publisher. Um, for your book, so once they got once they, once you've got it into a position where you're happy to sell it, they will also the agent will help you create some kind of blurb that will hopefully sell it to a publisher and kind of put it in its best light. They will arrange meetings galore. They will they will distribute the novel to people who they think are appropriate, <coughs> and that's the that that's really key. So finding an appropriate publisher, they won't just help you find an appropriate publisher. They will help you find an appropriate editor. So they will actually look into who they think will work best with you as an author, but also who will work best with your particular uh, manuscript. Um, and and that's a really key thing, and I think it's something that people don't necessarily realise, because most agents, especially more experienced ones, they know everyone. They know they, they know them all personally. They've worked with them with, with, with editors um, and different people within publishing houses because they've done it through their other authors, or they've just been on, you know in the working in the publishing industry for so long and everyone gets to know each other in one way or another and so they just know they just you know they they read a manuscript and they think i know which editor can really make this fantastic and 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 get it out to readers um so that's part of the thing that they will they will do that doesn't often get talked about um and they will like i say they will create the blurb and basically just package your book in a way that they will they think gives it the best chance to sell to a publisher um, and they will send it out to the publisher, and there will be a first round of um, of, of um, publishers. So there will be uh, people who you kind of say, these are the people we, we want to target first. We know that they may be busy; they might not be. They might be, you know, really big in big publishers, you know, that kind of thing, you know, aim high type thing. And um, it might be that it doesn't it doesn't sell straight away in that first round and again that's what happened happened to me extremely common I'm, it's you know perfectly normal everyone's heard about the re- process of receiving rejections it's very common for that to happen but there will be a first round that's uh, where the manuscript is sent out to publishers um and they will whilst you're waiting because there is some waiting involved in this and it can be months mm. um yeah your agent will give you or should give you feedback. Um, so they should, when if you get a rejection, they should hopefully not just send you an email saying, oh, it was a no. They will say, and I've pushed them. I've tried to find out exactly what it was that they felt wasn't, you know, was that they felt that, it, that there was wrong with it or that they felt, you know, why didn't they not just, well, why were they not able to make the decision to take you on? And so, how much of a benefit was that? I mean, you know, if you didn't have an agent, <clears throat> well, it would just be nope. Actually, no feedback. Yeah, I mean, it, it was valuable, um, and I and I in between round one and round two of sending the book out to publishers, I did a lot of work in between time, but actually, I didn't get very much specific feedback from publishers because, um, and I'm not saying this to be 
arrogant or anything like that because at the end of the day this was a series of rejections so there's not much to be arrogant about but mm. one of the difficulties i had was that the feedback was generally positive and mm. uh, and I, I the phrase that kept coming up uh, which is a, a, a very common publishing phrase was i just didn't love it enough so there was lots of this is really good really like the writing style i love the story it's you know it's all that kind of thing but i just didn't mm. quite love it enough and you know it's difficult to know what to do with that as an author to how to how to yeah. kind of how, how to kind of transfer that into something tangible that you can go away and work on just write some cuddly rabbits into the plot somewhere <laughs> yeah maybe oh, but i i i mean i can imagine that's frustrating when it's not actually something specific that you feel okay but it is it not kind of um reassuring that in general people are very positive about it reassuring that's also good feedback i mean not good feedback i mean useful feedback yeah it was reassuring it was useful feedback to know that it wasn't terrible but at the same time yeah. it was still <laughs> a re- yeah it was still a rejection they you know they were still rejections yeah so what what happened then actually so some of the the other thing i was some kind of being a bit disingenuous i think actually so a couple of people mentioned the ending so that was the one bit where where there was some kind of agreement although not everyone said it but there was some kind of agreement that the ending could be different or better so I, that was one of the things i worked on and i changed the ending quite a bit mm. and then the book went out again so it went to a second round and um i and i got a publisher and then the agent's job then is to negotiate the best possible deal for you and to weigh up the options really to 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 not just kind of say to you look we've got an offer from a publisher let's go crazy and throw a party and accept straight away it's it was it, it was for me and i imagine it's the case for most people where there is a process of kind of right okay what's being offered what are the what are the terms so you you you, you can you can you can negotiate rights for example so whether um um the because obviously percentage of your work um your percentage of your royalties and your advance goes to your agent, as I've said. But of course, you're actually going to be paying a percentage of uh, any of your earnings to your publisher too. And that's the case for all the different potential variations of your work. So it's not just the actual book that you hold in your hands at the end of the process. It's also, what if you have an audio book made? What if it ends up being made into a film? Um, what if it gets sold to various countries? There will be a percentage um, uh, of of kind of earnings that goes to the publisher for all those different um, things, and your agent is the person who who knows what they're talking about because most authors don't. I still don't really. I don't. I mean, I've got some idea now, but at the time I was like, "Gosh, I've I've got no idea. Let's just let's just accept all of this." <laughs> and um, and of course, just sign right now. <laughs> yes, let's just fulfil this lifelong dream. Get it done. <laughs> And and uh, that's an interesting point, though. I might come come back to that briefly, but um, th- that's the agent's job. So their 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 big job at the end is to make sure that you get the very best possible deal for you. So just just to go back slightly, remember that not only have they sent stuff out to the best publishers in for your work, so not the best publishers, because what is what's that? What that's kind of a, a useless arbitrary phrase, but who they felt was the best fit for you. And then at the end, they, they they negotiate the best possible deal for you as well. 
and um and th- and and then as in long into the publication process they are still you know in touch and I, I you know this is i'm talking a lot from my experience here maybe it's not the case for everyone but certainly in touch just making sure that you're okay finding opportunities to speak for you um just generally being there for you in one way or another that's kind of how it should be it may not be like that for everyone i admit but that's been my experience and um and um it's it's been well worth it so that's a very we're out of time again. So we're going to have to go on to the actual what happens when you go through the process of getting your book made and published and working with the publisher. Perhaps we'll do that next week. But yeah. um, that that kind Let's of covers. Yeah, I think we haven't got time now, unfortunately. No, but it's a very very thorough run through of um, the job and expectations on an agent. And I have missed loads out. So if anyone has any questions about any of this, then you're more than welcome to get in touch either on Twitter at Ian Broom or just uh, email me, ian at rightforyourlife.net. And um, I'm happy to answer questions. I might not get back to you immediately, but um, I will happy to answer any questions or anything that you feel like I've just not covered. Then um, happy to do that. Should we very Can quickly- they also send questions to your agent that um, the agent will pass on to you? To my agent, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> That's not one of their jobs. They don't need to do that. No, unsolicited questions. Yes. Um, no. Should we quickly do listener's question? Listener's question. The listener's question is, we'll, we'll try and keep this brief because we are we are struggling for time again. So Linus Edwards, I think Linus may have been a previous listener's question uh, person. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, he says, would you encourage fiction writers to write short stories or is novel writing the best use of one's time? In brackets, Donna or poetry? Oh, did he say that? No, no, that was me. I added the bit in brackets. <laughs> oh. He didn't, men- he didn't mention you at all. <laughs> no, it's not about me, Ian. It's not <laughs> me. It's about the craft. <laughs> the ancient tradition. Um, well, I mean, I... I wouldn't like to uh, say what people should write at all, but I think I have dabbled a little bit, not that I would ever show anybody um, with short stories, just because I think it's really, it's really interesting, um, interesting form and what you can achieve in it. It just helps tighten things up a little bit. Don't you think when you're trying to start and finish something so quickly? Short stories are a really good way of improving your writing in in that sense, yes. So the the kind of limitations of a short story forces you to keep things tight and concise. I previously talked about the idea that a novel usually has to have two ideas to work um, and a short story, there's usually only space for one kind of idea and that gives you an extra kind of focus and um, and and, and uh, uh, sparseness your editing needs to be really spot on so in that sense I think there is it's definitely worth doing as a writing exercise um, in terms of whether it's the best use of one's time I'm not sure I could entirely answer that because that's a personal kind of thing but it's a fact that short story collections don't sell as well as novels but then lots of novels don't sell especially well and I think it's also generally true that very few publishers will publish a short story collection kind of first there are very few debut short story collections published it tends Mm. to be that you will write a novel and then maybe two novels and then maybe uh, your third your third kind of published collection or piece or book 
would be p- potentially a collection of short short stories. Um, but you know, also just from a personal satisfaction point of view, you know, if you are working on a novel and longer piece, just the idea that you take a bit of time out, like that brain space, sharpening your saw, and all that, that you um, that you focus on something like that, just to uh, to do something a bit different and take you to a different place. It's sure. much, yeah, absolutely. It's much easier to complete one, isn't it? And you get that sense yeah. of satisfaction. You feel like you're making progress because you can kind of see the end of it because it's not that far away. Yeah. Um, um, that whole rubbish not rubbish but what was it we said right at the start that it's like oh dear oh dear dear oh that was good that y- kind of yes know. exactly <laughs> that was <laughs> not particularly intellectual summing up of it but yes <laughs> but there's right. also it's also a similar similar kind of process to um to poetry that you described last week so a lot of people who write go on to write novels will actually spend quite a bit of quite a few years writing short stories and getting them published in journals and literary magazines and that kind of thing. Yeah. And much in the same way as you described with the poetry last week. Absolutely. Um, I think we answered that very nicely. And I'm slightly distracted because I just got a message from my little sister that I'd just like to briefly mention before we we say our goodbyes um, to say that she's just won um, a very prestigious reading prize at Cambridge where she's studying for um, translating and performing um, an ancient Icelandic uh, poem that she's done herself. And she just did that tonight. And I'm very proud of her. So I just wanted to say that. She's a force of nature, that girl. Isn't that fantastic? And when we've just been talking about, you know, people's aversion to difficulty, there are some people that want to sit and translate old Icelandic poems and perform them and people that apparently want to listen to that. So isn't that great? It's fantastic. There is hope yet. (laughs) Indeed. For difficult things. (laughs) Where can people find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at The Flying Poet. Um, I've got a little website if they want to have a look at it. Not, you know, I mean, it's it's sorensenpoetry.com. Um, those are probably the best two places and as previously mentioned I'm at Ian Broom on Twitter I-A-I-N-B-R-O-O-M-E and you can read my blog at ianbroom.com slash blog and find out about other stuff on there too Great. see you next week for um, continuation of the writing process publishing process oh yeah publishing that's what I meant same thing innit (laughs) same same yep see ya bye